Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Robert Verbruggen. He's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of National Review. He's been covering public policy and social science issues for City Journal since he joined MI last summer. He recently analyzed for City Journal President Biden's student loan executive actions and uh, in our summer issue wrote a really terrific long-form profile of the life and work of Charles Murray. So, Robert, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's start with that that piece you did on student debt. Um, the president announced last week his plan which would cancel $10,000 in student loans uh, for for those making for borrows making less than I think it was 125,000 annually, and that r- raises ultimately to $20,000 for for certain um, borrowers. I, he also extended the the current moratorium on debt payments through the end of the year, and you know Im- imposed a, a handful of other changes. So this decision fulfills a campaign promise. And it comes after months of speculation, uh, during which the administration picked some low-hanging fruit by forgiving the debt of students defrauded by certain institutions. But um, that's not to say it was a smart move. In your view, it wasn't. So uh, I wonder if you could sketch out your your argument uh, as you presented it in that piece and, and develop it. Sure. I think the, the gist of it here is that this is a ton of money to spend, and it's not p- targeted particularly well um, to people who we should be sympathetic enough uh, toward to, to, to give them federal money. Yet, as you mentioned, the limits of the forgiveness here are $10,000 for some, some borrowers and up to $20,000 um, for people who received Pell Grants back when they went to college. You know, we don't just run around giving ten dollars or $20,000 um, to people at random. This is something that, that if you're going to give that type of money to somebody out of taxpayer funds, um, which is what this this is because they borrowed the money from from the federal coffers and are supposed to pay it back, um, you need to have a pretty good pretty good reason. And also the the sheer scale of the spending um, as a whole is enormous. Um, the estimates that we're seeing so far are in the range of around $500 billion. Now, if you divide that by the 330 million people who are in the country, um, that's about $1,500 for every single man, woman, child in the country. That's a lot of money that we're spending on this. Um, for spending that kind of money, we should target it. Um, and and my, my big big objection to this is that it doesn't target people who were you know, defrauded by by institutions. It does not defraud people. It does not target people with uh, very low incomes. It does not target people who um, you know, for example, fell fell way behind on their their payments and ended up just way way over their heads. There are already programs we have that that address some of those issues, and, and those are things that we could look at look at fixing. But what this does is simply gives ten to twenty thousand dollars more or less indiscriminately. Um, as you mentioned, there is a, an income cutoff of it's one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for an individual and two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a couple. Um, that that does take out about five percent of the population, so it stops very the very rich from benefiting from this. But I would argue that it's, that it's 
it's completely ridiculous as a cutoff for federal largesse, where you're taking money from some taxpayers and giving it to others. Somebody who is making $125,000 or a couple that's making $250,000 is extremely well off um, in, in relation to the average person in this country. The median earnings for a, a worker working full-time is somewhere between fifty dollars and $60,000. The median income for a household in America is about $70,000. And we're giving money to people who, um, who make well more than that before they hit that cutoff. Uh, Biden cited his authority to do this under the HEROES Act, which was a two, 2003 law passed in the aftermath of 9-11. Uh, it, it gives the education secretary authority to lift loan requirements in the event of a national emergency. It's the same justification or authority that the Trump administration used in suspending loan payments during the pandemic. Uh, you know, how likely is this... Um, going to be to hold up in court, and and are there going to be uh, legal challenges? Uh, well, one, I, 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 this is extremely complicated as a legal matter, um, and uh, even the lawyers are, are disagreeing about it. And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't have very bold predictions to make. Uh, one, one prediction I would make is that it's going to be challenges. There are definitely going to be challenges in court. Um, the question is, is how are they going to fare? Um, Certainly no law was ever intended to just give the executive branch the authority to to start forgiving student debt wherever it feels like. Um, but there are some laws that have vague language. And the one that they've uh, pointed to specifically is the HEROES Act, which you mentioned. It was a law passed uh, as we were going into Iraq. Um, the idea was to allow the executive branch to sort of uh, give, give some forgiveness to people who were directly affected by wars, national uh, uh, disasters. Um, it basically, it was, it was meant to give targeted relief to people who were, for example, going over and fighting our wars. Um, basically, what they're saying is that um, you know, COVID was a disaster for the entire country, so therefore, this, this gives us the authority to give free money to everyone. That is that is not what was intended by that. That's not what anybody thought they were enacting when they passed that law. The law passed almost unanimously. I think there was one no vote in the House um, back in 2003. Um, so I, I obviously was not intended to do that, but it was written in, in broad enough language <clears throat> that you can kind of make a case that it, that it gives them a very broad authority. Um, so that, that's that's the first interesting question is, you know, on the merits here, um, how, how, how are courts going to interpret that? I think the current Supreme Court is uh, very reticent to read laws broadly to give the executive branch more authority, especially when it's extremely unlikely that in this, this uh, you know, heretofore obscure um, law from 2003, um, we granted the executive branch authority to forgive $10,000 to $20,000 of student debt for everybody. Um, but we'll have to see how they, they handle that as a textual issue because the language in there actually is fairly broadly written. Um, and then the second question is standing. Um, you can't just go to court as a taxpayer and say, hey, you're, you're giving away a bunch of my money and I want to sue. You need to demonstrate some concrete in injury to yourself that gets much more specific than simply being a taxpayer in a situation where um, in a, arguably illegal action wasted taxpayer money. So there's a lot of debate about who exactly would have standing to sue to block somebody else's loan forgiveness. Um, some some theories are loan servicers could because uh, these loan servicers make money servicing the loans that are now being canceled. So they're going to lose business from that. Um, you could uh, also argue that if you barely missed the income cutoff, um, that you could sue on the grounds that um, this didn't go through the notice and comment procedures um, required by federal law, and you should have had the chance to argue for a higher income cutoff that would have would have uh, included you. Um, there, there are a lot of legal theories out there, and it gets and when you get to standing questions, the the issues get very complicated and technical in a hurry. So I'm very interested to see how it plays out, but I don't have concrete predictions. Sure, um, you know there there are 
provisions in the plan that don't make it completely a handout to the wealthy. Uh, I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about the distributional um, effects of, of the decision. It, it does seem to be the middle class uh, who will benefit the most from this. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's one place where I think uh, Biden deserves at least some credit um, because he, he definitely rejected some of the earlier plans, which involved, um, you know, some people were saying you should just flat out cancel all student debt. Some people were asking for limits up to $50,000. Um, the problem, the problem with this is that, you know, first of all, people who go to college make more money than people who don't. So when you're targeting you know, people who went to college for special debt relief, you're targeting the upper class more. Um, and, and secondly, about 40% of all student debt is for graduate school, not just undergraduate school. So the and the individuals who did go to grad graduate school um, have, have the biggest debt. So the people who would be getting the biggest checks from this are you know people like doctors and lawyers, people who have you know these big um, big debts that they racked up um, pursuing degrees that are actually very you know high paying that lead, lead to very high paying careers in medicine and, and the law. Um, so what Biden did is sort of hit on this triple package of of limits to to that system where he managed to direct the money a little bit lower on the income spectrum. One of them we've already discussed, the $125,000, $250,000 cutoff keeps off the top of about the top 5% of income earners. Um, limiting the forgiveness to, to $10,000 um, means that there's going to be less skew toward people with grad degrees because if you have you know, $60,000 worth of debt, you can still only get uh, $10,000 forgiven. Um, and then the extra $10,000 given to, to people who receive Pell Grants in college is kind of, is kind of an interesting um, provision as well. Um, for, for, first of all, it, it increases the cost a lot. So he's he's uh, giving more money uh, to the overall program and increasing the cost of it. But it distributes the money more to poorer people because people who got Pell Grants are people who came from lower income families. Um, obviously, the fact that you came from a lower income family does not mean that you're lower income today necessarily, but disproportionately, that's true. So if you target this population for additional aid, you're giving a higher percentage of the aid to people who are middle class now. So if you look at the, the, the analysis by the Penn Wharton budget model, um, basically it appears to be giving the, the bulk of the money to the middle of the income spectrum rather than to the upper middle or the upper uh, part of the income spectrum. And, and that's true both overall and if you look just at the 25 to 35 year old age group. Um, if we check back on these folks in, in 20 years, it's definitely possible that the folks who got aid are going to be doing you know much better, you know much higher in the, the higher lifetime income, and that's a criticism that I've that I've seen of the Penn Penn Wharton analysis is that it doesn't account for future income you know lifetime trajectory. But for for right now, it definitely seems that this was targeted at the middle class rather than the wealthy. Uh, one criticism of uh, the bill is uh, or the measure is that. Um you know, it could encourage students to take on more debt um, and that colleges will respond by just raising tuition. Um, how, you know, how likely is that, uh, you know, or is, is there a point that we're going to reach where the tuition bubble will finally burst? I, I've been hearing this for a long time. Uh, or will this just continue to add to the cost of college? I think in, in two ways, it's, it's going to contribute to the problem. For the first is, is just sort of the, as a general matter, when you forgive debt, that, that sends the message that taxpayers stand ready to pump more money into higher education. So you make people less price sensitive when they're making decisions about higher education. And the second, um, there's a left-leaning writer named Matt Bruning who had a, um, a, a post that really made the rounds a few days ago. Um, point, pointing out that one of the lesser talked about aspects of the, the bill, the uh, income-based repayment, <clears throat> 
reforms. Um, what that did, what that program is, is it allows uh, people to enroll and you can uh, pay a certain percentage of your income rather than paying your loans in a traditional manner. Um, and for people with undergraduate loans, um, it cut the percentage from 10% to 5%. So that makes the, that program much more attractive to people to enroll in. Um, and the problem with that is that if you are going to be paying a certain percentage of your income for a certain number of years, you don't care what your total debt amount is because you're not paying that. You're paying the percentage of your income. So his point is that uh, colleges can basically jack their tuition way up, um, have their students take out loans, um, and then enroll, the students enroll in the income-based repayment. They don't actually pay them off. So the college uh, pockets the money and the government is stuck with the bill. Um, one response I've seen to that from, uh, for example, Jordan Weissman at, at Slate is that there are already caps that limit how much uh, borrowers can borrow. So there's not as much room for tuition to, to grow as you might worry. But the, the issue there is that if you're leaning on those government set caps, um, you basically have price controls. So you're basically no longer having a market that's controlling costs. And the only cost control we have is just based on where the government chose to set that price cap. <laughs> Um, to me, the uh, in, in terms of the you, meant, you mentioned the the higher ed bubble, um, is, is that bubble going to burst? Um, and what I see on the horizon there is actually more about demographics. Um, I, I, I'm a millennial. I was born in 1984. My generation was actually pretty big. Um, uh, we're sort of an echo of the baby boom generation. After the baby boomers, you know, grew up and hit hit childbearing age themselves, they had kids um, and, and created sort of a demographic um, bubble. So my generation is big. But we're not in college anymore. We're I'm, I'm almost forty, so the number of college age Americans is is set to start declining, and that's going to be a huge blow to the higher ed sector. And we're going to have to see how they how they manage to uh, wriggle their way out of that. If that's through going to the government for more money, or if it's by contracting as a sector. Hmm. Um, to to shift gears, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about your other wonderful recent profile um, of of Charles Murray. Uh, which was in our summer city journal, uh, you know, in his long career, he's, he's certainly been embroiled in controversial and sensitive topics in social policy from welfare reform and the relationship between intelligence and crime to assortive mating or assortative mating, uh, the growing class divide. Um, you know, you've obviously followed his work very closely over the years. What stood out to you while reporting the story and do you think Murray's work has become more or less influential over time? Yeah, I mean, I've been a been a fan of Charles Murray since I was since my college years. Um, so I, I'd already read most of his books, and this was a, a really great chance for me to to go back and reread his his books. And I also had the chance to sit down with him um, for for an interview. Um, one one thing that really stood out to me while looking back at at his at his career is that he did something that we don't see people do a lot anymore. We don't have uh, big books like Losing Ground or The Bell Curve so much anymore. And, and I think that's probably in part because we consume information in all these bite-sized chunks on social media and in so many other ways. Um, and also because we're polarized in a book with you know controversial claims you know, of a right-wing or libertarian um, you know, angle, uh, th those books are just sold to conservatives these days. So if you look at Losing Ground, if you look at the bell curve, you have one author who is able to capture the entire nation's attention in, in a big way twice in two decades. I, I don't see anybody doing that anymore, and I don't see books having that, that central role in the public debate anymore. So that was really striking to me as somebody who um, was you know, either 
extremely, extremely young or in grade school when these when these books originally came out. Um, another thing that stood out to me is that social science has really changed since the 1980s and 1990s. I spend a lot of my time looking through modern social science, um, reading, reading modern studies. Um, and I also do you know, some data work myself. I majored in journalism, but I can just go on the internet and download census data in a few minutes. Where if you look at um, the acknowledgments in, in Losing Ground, and, uh, and I talked to him a little bit about this, what this process was like, he had to go in person to government offices to find all these obscure reports with statistics in them. And, and if, if he wanted any numbers that weren't currently available, he couldn't just calculate them. He had to have them do special computer runs. So I, I think um, that was really striking to me in that we now have much more open access to, to government data thanks to the internet. And that's actually a, a, a really good thing. Um, on, on his his influence has become more more or less influence influential over time. I, I would make I would say two things. Um, so first of all, his his thinking just absolutely still resonates to this day, especially um, you know on the losing ground and bell curve topics of you know the welfare state and the incentives it creates and the importance of intelligence to success in modern modern societies. To this day, you can't understand the controversies over those topics without engaging with what he said and what his critics said about him. Um, and also the things he wrote in Coming Apart about the splintering of white America, that, that really um, you know, foresaw what, what happened with the Trump phenomenon. So I think he's, he's uh, very, still very, very influential in terms of his classic works. Um, but another thing I would note is that his critics have taken to just ignoring him when he, when he continues to, to speak. We're not, uh, you know, he's, he's still very much active, still much uh, writing, um, still, still contributing, um, and doing so in controversial ways. His last two books one called Facing Reality, in which he, he talked about racial gaps in, in, in crime rates and racial gaps in, in school performance and cognitive uh, tests, um, and also Human Diversity, where he wrote about human biology, you know, differences between sexes and differences between different human populations. Um, and these, these were very controversial things that could have made a splash, but they simply didn't because uh, the left basically ignored him. So that, that was another thing that I found interesting um, about going through his, his body of work and speaking with him. I wonder if uh, the, the social science landscape has changed a bit too, in a way that um, you know you, you have scientific journals nowadays uh, saying they're not going to publish certain papers that they view as politically um, toxic, uh, even if there might be you know truthful um, analysis in those papers. So I, I I wonder in general. You know, it's not that there weren't protests when Charles Murray was was doing some of these earlier uh, books, but uh, do you think that politics is is starting to uh, close the space for social science um, in a way that that wasn't even the case when the Bell Curve was pu- published, or or uh, even as recently as Coming Apart? Yeah, I mean, I think the way the way I look at that is that the internet is a blessing and a curse. Um, it certainly led to the pro- proliferation of this kind of uh, woke ideology in the cancel culture where basically social media gives you an opportunity to pressure people publicly in a big way that it was much more difficult to do, you know, 20, 30 years ago. The internet is also sort of a release valve for research that nobody is willing to publish. You can have any, any, any random person can grab a social media account or a blog um, and, and do an analysis of, of data, which, you know, as I mentioned before, there's a lot more publicly available data now um, and publish it. And so as the, uh, as the journals uh, shrink away from, from doing work that is important, um, other people are able to move in and fill that gap. 
Um, and that might actually lead to a better model for science where you have people doing their own work and, and publishing it and making, you know, also publicly posting, you know, here's, here's the, here are the calculations I did, here are the data I used, here's the file that you can use to replicate what I did. Um, that, that could be a much better model for science unless, you know, social media starts censoring that as well. Um, so I, I think it's a, it's a blessing and a curse right now that we have, uh, journals shying away from doing controversial and important work, but you also just have a much better ability of any random person off the street to, to figure these things out for themselves and to, and to make their own, you know, make their own way through the science. Um, a final question, tying these two, uh, two themes together. Um, you know, I haven't seen Murray weigh in on the, uh, the student loan decision. Um, but I wonder if he has, I, I, I haven't seen it, uh, but but what he might say, given his own work in education, and about you know this idea of really encouraging marginal students into four year um, college education. Um, I, I've not seen him weigh in either, and I, I wouldn't uh, purport to speak to him. Um, but but trying to to filter that issue through the the lens of his thought, I, I'd point to a few different different things he he's written in a few different aspects of his philosophy. Um, one of the the core arguments of both losing ground and in, in his uh, later book called in pursuit um, which is a much more philosophical book about the nature of, of uh, human flourishing and, and and the role of government um, is that, that people want to be self-sufficient they want to to make their own contributions they want to see the rewards of their own work um, and I think that it, you know giving people loans and then telling them they don't need to pay them back is is a um, you know counter to that goal certainly um, another big aspect of his thought is libertarianism. He, he wrote a book called What It Means to Be a Libertarian, though in, in recent years he's begun calling himself a Madisonian instead of a libertarian. Um, but I think, you know, the attitude I always have toward toward these kinds of things is why are you taking money from you know, one group of people and giving it to another group of people? Um, in this case, it's not even targeted that well. I mean, I think he would have a lot of the same concerns about the role of government. Um, and, and lastly, his book, Real Education, which was published, I believe, toward the end of the two, 2000s, which is one of my favorite books of his. Um, and, and basically, his point of, in Real Education is to tie some of the, the less controversial aspects of the bell curve about you know, variation in human intelligence, cognitive ability, and apply it to the education context. And, and his point is that not everybody is cut out for college, um, and we need to help them find their place in society and find their place in, in the workforce without trying to shoehorn them into to going to college. And obviously, you know, funneling a lot of uh, government money into college and forgiving the debts of people who went to college and, and putting so much focus on you have to have a BA or you are not, a, you know, a worthy person in society is, is very contrary to the message of that book. Well, thank you very much, Robert. Um, I encourage people to read that uh, essay on, on Murray's work. Um, it, it doesn't shy away from the controversies that uh, that uh, Murray was embroiled in on race and other issues. And uh, I think, uh, Robert, you, you did a terrific job of, of doing a fair assessment of his life and work. Um, uh, don't forget to check out Robert Verbruggen's work on the City Journal website. That's www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page on the description. Um, or in the description. You can also find City Journal or on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's 10 blocks, please give us a nice ratings on iTunes. So Robert, very, very good to talk with you uh, as always. Thanks, you too. 
Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.